First and Second Samuel, and anytime we see someone who's really pretty, we step back. God looks at the heart. We judge by outward appearances. Saul was handsome and was physically imposing, a head taller than everyone else. Eliab, David's oldest brother, looked like a king. We know sometimes outward appearances can be deceiving. It's what we look at. But it's not what God looks at. So at a minimum, whatever you think of Absalom up to this point, you may think that he's a guy who, for the sake of the honor and of his sister and for the sake of justice, killed his brother. I don't know how you see him, but this should give you pause. Anytime someone is described in this way, particularly in these books, it makes us step back and go, what is that saying about their character? If outwardly they look that good, inwardly is that going to line up as well? This whole thing about his hair, that's a point of... that's. Part of him being so handsome, it seems to be a point of pride as well. And it actually, if you can imagine, this is going to play a part in his death, if you can imagine somebody's hair doing that, but his will, and we'll see that in a couple of weeks. Absalom lived two years in Jerusalem without seeing the king's face. Got that? So he's been brought back, and he's living in town with David. Two years, he doesn't see his face. Then Absalom sent for Joab in order to send Joab to the king, but Joab refused to come to Absalom. So Absalom sent a second time, but Joab refused to come. Then Absalom said to his servant, Look, Joab's field's next to mine. He has barley there. Go set it on fire. So Absalom's servant set the field on fire. Then Joab did come to Absalom's house. And he said to him, Why have your servant set my field on fire? Absalom said to Joab, Look, I sent word to you and said, Come here so I can send you to the king. To ask, why have I come from Geshur? Why have you brought me back? It would be better for me if I was still there. Now then I want to see the king's face. If I'm guilty of anything, let him put me to death. So Joab went to the king and told him this. Then the king summoned Absalom and he came in and bowed down with his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. So that's five years of not seeing each other. That, that's the father-son reunion. Pretty anticlimactic there. So... Two years, David won't see Absalom. Absalom gets tired of it. I don't like Absalom. I've said that before. But in this case, he's right. David can't have it both ways, which is what he says to Joab. He sets his field on fire just because Joab's not returning his calls. And so now jo- he ha- he's going to now because he burned his crop down. So Joab goes and he says, listen, David can't have it both ways. Either I'm guilty of murder and he needs to kill me or I'm not guilty and he needs to restore me. But he can't keep me in limbo any longer. Again, I don't like Absalom, but he's 100% right in this instance. And so David brings Absalom back. Absalom makes a show of humility by bowing before him. David makes a show of acceptance by kissing him. But there's no, there's no enthusiasm here. There's no, this, this is superficial uh, restoration at best. There's, no, there's nothing going on. There's no, hey, what about killing your brother or... No, what, what, where have you been for the last five years? There's no conversation about anything significant. They just go through the motions. I think David is, um, I think he's conflicted. He's a father and he's a king. And I think those two roles are pulling at his heart. I think as a father, he's already lost two sons. He lost the son he had with Bathsheba. God struck that son. He lost Amnon, who was killed by Absalom. I think he doesn't want to lose any more kids. And so I think he wants, as a dad, he wants... Absalom back. That's a part of him that longs for Absalom. But as a king, he knows that Absalom broke the law. He murdered someone, and he has to pay for that. There's judgment for that. 
even if you want to give Absalom the best possible motive and say he was standing up for his sister when David didn't, and he was trying to avenge her or preserve her honor or bring her justice. However, if you want to, again, best possible light, he went so far beyond what the law says the penalty for rape is. It wasn't a capital crime. You may think it should be, but it's not in the Old Testament. Rape was not a capital crime. For Absalom to kill Amnon was a sin, and David as the king knows that, and it's his responsibility to hold Absalom accountable, and I don't think he wants to. And so I think that's the conflict. There's a part of him that longs for Absalom to come home, and then when Absalom comes home, there's that other part of him that says, I can't, you can't see me, and I can't see you, because when I do, something's got to be done about what you did, and I'm not ready to do anything. And so David is in this, He's paralyzed, and Absalom's in this kind of relational limbo, and after two years he says, enough's enough. Either kill me or restore me, but you can't keep doing this. David, we've seen, this is now year seven of him paralyzed when it comes to his own kids. Amnon rapes his sister, and David does nothing. He gets really angry, but he doesn't act for two years. Absalom runs away, three years in exile. David does nothing. His heart longs to go to him. He makes no moves towards him. Now Absalom has lived in the same town as him for two years. Nothing, no step towards him, either to judge him or to pardon him. Nothing. He seems completely incapable of making a move regarding his children. In both cases, he has to be prodded by someone else. Joab has to kind of work through this woman tells David a story in order to get David to bring Absalom back. Now we see Absalom has got to really force David's hand. He's, again, he's, he's paralyzed. And I think it's the conflict between these two parts of him, his, the, the father part of him that wants Absalom to be restored and the king part of him that recognizes as the representative of God to Israel, as the one who's supposed to uphold the law, he's got to hold him accountable. And he's not willing to do so. And so you've got this superficial... Peace, we'll call it. Superficial peace between David and Absalom, and it doesn't, it's not helpful. The dysfunction there between their family, between them as father and son, now spills over into the nation. In the course of time, I think it's immediate. I think as David's the king, so what he does is public. So welcoming Absalom back, it's not just bringing him back into the family as a private family matter, it's saying, hey, he's now, he's okay. Absalom is now the prince, a popular understanding. He would be the one who would succeed David. So when David gives him a kiss and saying, I accept him, that there's, there's corporate and national ramifications for that. Now Absalom is back uh, in the king's favor, which means his position in terms of being the crown prince has been restored. So in the course of time, and again, I think it's immediate, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. He would get up early and stand by the, sit, by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him. What town are you from? He would answer your servants from the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, look, your claims are valid and proper. There's no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, if only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case would come to me. And I would see that they received justice. Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king, asking for justice. And so he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. So Absalom wins the nation over to his side, at least 
a lot of them. Very shrewd in what he does. So remember, he's the best looking guy in Israel. So he already has that going for him. He looks like a king. In everyone's mind, as the heir apparent, he, he, he will be the king. And then he gets a horse or horses. He gets a chariot and he gets 50 bodyguards. Those are all things kings have. He never says, I want to be the king. He's too shrewd for that. But he has all the trappings of royalty. First guy in the Old Testament we've ever seen who acquires a chariot for himself. Only kings have those things, and Absalom now has them. And then he positions himself really strategically. So every day, David would hear the hardest cases, things that the local elders couldn't figure out, things that they couldn't discern. Those guys would come to David, he would hear their case, and then he would make a verdict for them. So you have all these guys who are coming to David with difficult legal cases, looking for justice. Absalom puts himself basically at the front door. And so everyone who wants to get to David has to first pass by Absalom. And he's there super early in the morning before anybody goes to work in the fields. He's going to get everybody who comes by. And what he does is he plays the politician. He's like a campaigning politician. Remember, he's the best looking guy in Israel. He's a prince, so he's loaded. He's got 50 bodyguards. He's got a chariot. He's got all these horses. And he's like the politician who goes and eats at the diner. And rolls his sleeves up. And you can tell he's never done that before. He, has, he knows what eggs Benedict is. He has no idea what cheesy eggs are. He doesn't know. That's Absalom. That's Absalom. He's going to have a clue. Hey, where are you from? One of the tribes of Israel. I know your claims are valid. They're, everyone's claim is not valid. But it doesn't matter because he's just campaigning. He's just making promises. Sowing seeds of discontent. If only there was somebody to listen to you. There's a guy right back there waiting to listen to you. If only there was somebody here to listen to you. If I was a judge, then I would give you justice. Don't bow down to me. I'm just like you are here. Let me give you a kiss, a sign of friendship and acceptance. It's all, he, he's, he's winning their hearts. I also see him. So that means what Absalom's doing. He's campaigning and the people. You ever heard like it's the backup quarterback kind of fallacy. So the guy looks great on the sideline holding a clipboard with a baseball cap on. They all look great. You don't have a clue if they can do anything. And when your guy is starting to play bad, everybody thinks that guy can do it better. He looks really good in practice. He's never actually had to play, but he looks really good. And the people, that's what they're doing. They're looking at Absalom and going, he looks really good. He's never actually had to make a decision. He's never actually had to run anything. But he, he looks great. I think he could do a better job than David. This is an inference I believe the kingdom is starting to fall apart a little bit. I think what we see in David's house over the last seven years is spilling out into the nation. Otherwise, Absalom couldn't steal the hearts of the people. There are cracks in David's leadership and his administration. People are not getting justice on some degree. If he's paralyzed in his home, he maybe is paralyzed when it comes to the nation as well. And so, yes, Absalom is sowing seeds of discontent, but there's, there's fertile ground that they're landing on, or else he would not have been successful. So I think people are looking at him and they're reading into him what they want, what they're not currently getting from David. So Absalom is campaigning and the people are wishing, they're wanting something else. And those two things kind of come together over the course of these two years. At the end of four years, so that's two years that he's in Jerusalem and can't see David, then two years that he's running his campaign. So after four years, Absalom says to the king, let me go to Hebron and fulfill a vow I made to the Lord. 
While your servant was living in Geshur and Aram, I made this vow. If the Lord takes me back to Jerusalem, I will worship the Lord in Hebron. The king said to him, Go in peace. So Absalom went to Hebron. Then Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. Two hundred men from Jerusalem had accompanied Absalom. They'd been invited as guests and were quite innocent, knowing nothing about the matter. While Absalom was offering sacrifices, he also sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, David's counselor, to come from Gilo, his hometown. And so the, con- the conspiracy gained strength and Absalom's following kept on increasing. A messenger came and told David, the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. Then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, come, we must flee or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. Next week, we'll look at David fleeing. I just want you to see that last paragraph to see his response. So Absalom has been building support for two years secretly. And now he says, I want to go to Hebron, which is his birthplace. Also where David was anointed king, probably not coincidence. And David says, okay. Absalom said he made a vow. He didn't. It's four years later. But he goes to Hebron under that cover. Absalom, again, very, very shrewd. He invites 200 men, and you know they're not nobodies. 200 most likely prominent guys, and they don't know why they're coming. But once they're in Hebron, which is a walled city, even if they disagree with what Absalom is doing, they can't go anywhere. They're not going anywhere. David doesn't know that. He just knows there's 200 guys who maybe he thought were loyal to him who are now in Hebron. Absalom's already sent out messengers to everybody and says, when you hear the trumpets, proclaim Absalom is the king. And so they blow the trumpets and everyone proclaims Absalom is the king. And he not only has these 200 men with him, he has this guy, Hithophel, who's one of David's closest and most, uh, most trusted advisors, who also happens to be the granddad of Bathsheba. Probably not hard for Absalom to win him over to his side after the way David treated his granddaughter. So you've got Ahithophel, you've got these 200 prominent men, they're, they're in Hebron. Ahithophel's fully behind Absalom. The other 200 guys, we don't know. They just went because they were invited by the prince, and that's what you do if the prince invites you someplace. And when David hears, to me, his reaction is so telling. Like, so those of you who are dads, if you heard, hey, one of your sons is trying to throw you out of the family business, like, would you believe them? Or would you say, no, my kid would never do that. We're close. We talk. David's response is immediate. Let's get out of here. He's going to kill us. Let's get out of here because he's going to kill us. He knew something. He knew. We see nine years of inactivity on David's part. Nine years of doing nothing to discipline his children. And we can't, he knows. He may not know consciously in his brain. He's not letting himself know. But he knows in his heart. He knows something's wrong. Otherwise, when he hears Absalom is proclaiming himself king, he would say what you would say about your kid. No way. There's no way he would do that. We just talked the other day. Everything's good. He's going to wait his turn. He knows not to lay his hand on the Lord's anointing. He would never do that to me. That is not David's response. He looks around and there's 200 guys who were with him who are not there. Ahithophel's not there. And he says, Absalom, is, it's true and we've got to get out of here because he's going to kill us. 
He knew something was wrong and he never did anything. I can't fathom two years of a guy in your front door saying you're doing a bad job and you're never hearing about it. and never say anything. And that's after two years of not talking to him when he's in your city. And that's after three years of him living in exile. After he killed one of your sons and you did nothing about it. And that's after two years of another one of your sons raping one of your daughters and you doing nothing about it. Nine years of inactivity. And we finally see the full bloom, for lack of a better word, of that sin, of David's inattentiveness and David's negligence. It doesn't just affect his family. Now it's spilling out into a whole nation. There's not just no justice for Tamar. There's no justice for Amnon. He's a creep. He's a terrible person, but he didn't deserve to die for what he did. He doesn't get justice. The nation is now being split because Absalom's leading a coup and he's stolen the hearts of the people. David's just about to walk out of the city. And we'll look at that next week and kind of what's going on in his heart. I was thinking about that for us. Every relational, we'll call it system, has sin as a part of it. Because every relational system is made up of people and people are fallen and we sin. I'm not necessarily talking about the sins that you commit. If you commit a sin, you confess that sin to the Lord and you ask for forgiveness. You repent before the Lord, which is committing to walk in a new direction by His grace. You may need to seek forgiveness from the person you sinned against. That's not always the case. Particularly if they don't know that you sinned against them, then there's no reason to go to them and say, hey, I thought you were a jerk for the past year and I want to apologize. Like, don't do that. Just keep it to yourself. But that's what we do when we sin. We confess and we repent and then we seek forgiveness from the others as that's appropriate. If someone sins against us, we forgive them. We don't have an option. That's what we do. We're commanded. We forgive if someone sins against us. I'm not necessarily talking about that. There's definitely bleed. It's a gray area. I'm really talking more about sin kind of being introduced into a relational system. Absalom or Amnon didn't sin against David. He sinned against Tamar. But it affected David's relationship with Amnon. Absalom didn't sin against David. Absalom sinned against Amnon. But it affected David's relationship with Absalom. You see the difference there? There's definitely some gray and there's some bleed, but it's a little bit different. Someone sins against us, we forgive them. That's what we do. This is more, we're in this dynamic. I want you thinking maybe primarily about the home that you came from. The home that you have now, however you would define that home, it may not be blood. Whoever you would say, this is my, these are my people, this is my core. So think about those two primary circles. The home that you came from, mom and dad, whoever those people are. And the home that you have now, however you would define that. And sin can be introduced into those circles. It may not necessarily even be someone who's sinning against you. If they're sinning against you, you forgive them. But the sin affects you. And that's what you see with David. He's impacted by the sins of his sons. And his response is to avoid. That's what he does. We see nine years of David avoiding. He never says anything to Amnon. Creates the context for Absalom to kill Amnon. If David had done his job as a father and as a king, he would have held Amnon responsible for what he did to Tamar, and Absalom never would have had the opportunity to kill him. I think Absalom was an opportunist. I think he always wanted to be the king, and he saw a chance to, kick, to, to kill the guy who was in front of him in line, and he took it. I don't think he cared a rip about his sister. 
But it, again, regardless of his motives, if David had done his job, then there's no, there's no, there's no room for Absalom to maneuver. But he doesn't. Absalom kills Amnon. David doesn't hold him accountable. He lets him live in exile for three years. He brings him back and never says anything. And when Absalom challenges him and says, either kill me or restore me, David does really kind of neither. He gives him a kiss and gives Absalom basically carte blanche to begin to lead this coup, to start this campaign of discontent. I can do a better job than David. He avoids the issues, puts his head in the sand, sweeps it under the rug, doesn't talk about the elephant in the room, whatever cliche you want to use. That's David's response. There's no justice. There, it creates an environment for sin to increase, both in kind. We go from rape to murder to rebellion and in scope from one family to a nation. And it leads ultimately to broken relationships. I think David avoids the issues because he's trying to preserve relationship. I think that's what he wants. That father part of him wants to be restored to his kids. And so I think that's what he's trying to do. I think he received mercy from the Lord, and maybe in some distorted way he thinks he's showing mercy to his kids. It's very different. David was confronted with the sin and repented. Amnon was never confronted, never repented. Absalom was never confronted, never repented. Very different. But maybe in David's distorted mind, it's the same. He's morally compromised because of his own sin, and he's trying to extend mercy to people who, they're, they're, not, they're not repentant. And he winds up losing relationship with both kids that he's trying to preserve. Both of them to death. Absalom winds up dying in a battle very soon. He loses Amnon to death and he loses Absalom to death. He avoids. I'm an avoider. And so I relate to David. I don't know if you're an avoider. I think David avoids out of some distorted sense of love and mercy in order to preserve relationship, I avoid because I can't stand relational awkwardness at all. I, I'm allergic. It gives me hives. I run away. I can't watch it on TV. I can't see those movies. Anything that there's... If there's relational tension, I'm out. Period. It doesn't matter if I know that it's always going to end well, like at the end of the romantic comedy. I can't watch those. I know that there's going to be the little breakup at the two-thirds mark. I can't watch it. I can't watch Meet the Parents. It's a terrible movie for me. Any of those kinds of things. If there's going to be tension, I'm out. That's why I like shows like Law and Order because there's no, there, there, there's no relationship. Hawaii Five-0. There's no relationships. That's what I want. I want a good guy catching a bad guy and I don't want anybody to cry. That's what I want. And so relationally... That's a hindrance for me. I'm an avoider. I don't like confrontation by nature. I don't like relational awkwardness. I actually have a very strong sense of right and wrong, and I know that can make me self-righteous and judgmental, and so I lean really hard the other way. And all of those things factor into why I avoid. David, doesn't avoid, David avoids for very different reasons. I actually think it's really common in the church. And I would imagine most of you are avoiders. Most of you tend to sweep it under the rug. Somebody else will take care of it. Maybe you pray for them, which is great, better than nothing, but we certainly are not looking to get involved. And so we are these family systems, these relational dynamics have this bent to them because nobody is addressing the sin issue. For most of it, it's not going to play out like it is in 
2 Samuel 15. Nobody's leading a coup. A nation is not going to split. But families split. And relationships are broken because we tend to avoid. Again, I don't know if that's you. Some people, I think it's fewer people, but it's real, are abandoners. That's what Absalom is. Amnon rapes Tamar. Absalom doesn't talk to him for two years, and then he kills him. He's cut off relationship. He's unhappy, we'll say, best lie, he's unhappy with the way David handles the situation. And so he runs away for three years, cuts off relationship, and then he decides he can do a better job, and he tries to throw David out of his role as king. And that may be you. You may not be an avoider. Like me, you may be more of an abandoner, and maybe not physically, Maybe you don't actually, you physically don't leave, but you're emotionally, you're checked out. You show up at Thanksgiving, but you're, you're not engaged. You're cut off relationally. How do you know if you I think abandoners are, they keep a record of wrongs. They got a list. Here are all the things that you've done wrong, and you're just kind of waiting to drop the list and to cut and run. Again, maybe not physically, but emotionally, you're out. It kills relationship as well. Are, are you an avoider? Are you an abandoner? Again, I think most of us probably lean towards avoider, but there are a few of you who may lean the other way. Not helpful. Doesn't produce any fruit long term. David and Absalom both lost the thing that they were looking for because they didn't handle the sin in their family dynamic well at all. When you look up at the family that you came from, when you look at the current family that you have, however you're defining that, how are you dealing with the sin issues? And there are some because those dynamics are made up of people and people are fallen. You're putting your head in the sand, hoping it'll all go away. Are you cutting yourself off from those people? Maybe you're thinking, maybe there's a justice part of you and you're thinking they're going to get what they deserve and I can't wait to see it. That's kind of where I think Absalom stood. I'm not a abandoner. I don't, I don't understand that quite as much as I do the avoiding. But if it's you, I'd encourage you to own that. So what does health look like? And you know all of these things. Here's a couple things for you to think about. So just a general principle. Love covers a multitude of sins. That's a quote from Proverbs. Love covers over a multitude of sins. So we're all fallen. We all sin. Nobody needs like the sin police who are calling them on everything. So part of you and me loving God and loving one another is we give each other grace. And we say, because I love God and because I love you, there's, there's room here. There's room for you to mess up. There's room for you to hurt me. There's room for you to misunderstand me. There's room for you to grow and for you to, to not be perfect in our family. Again, however you're defining that. So love covers a multitude of sins. That's a general principle that you need to keep in mind. So beyond that, we want to discern, well, when do we engage? Love covers a multitude of sins, so there'll be plenty of times that we don't engage. There are going to be times that we do. And I say, as the stakes rise, the need for engagement rises as well. If you think about Amnon and you think about Absalom... What they're doing, it's, it's significant. These aren't, these aren't petty grievances. These are egregious sins. They're top ten sins from the Ten Commandments. They're, they're breaking those here. 
There's got to be some level of engagement. So if you're an abandoner, that second thing is for you. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So if it's possible, and as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now, it may be impossible. The person may be dead. That's impossible then. They may be really far away. So there's not going to be a deep relationship. They may not be willing to change. Forgiveness is required. That's one way between you and the Lord. Reconciliation is always desired, but it's a two-way street. I can't be reconciled to you if there's no shift. I have to be willing to change my behavior and you have to be willing to change yours in order for us to move forward together. So as far as it depends on me, I want to be willing to make the changes that are necessary in order to make relationship with you work. But you may not want to. You may say, I am who I am. I'm never going to change. I don't think there's a problem. Well, then we're not going to have a relationship, but that's not on me. As much as it depends on me, I want to live at peace with everyone. If you're an abandoner, you need to hear that and own that. As mu- if it's possible, and as much as it depends on you, are you living at peace with your mom and your dad and your brother and your sister? And your in-laws, your close friends, are you, are you doing that? Or are you cutting yourself off from them? If you're an avoider like me, that bottom one is for us. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. You should get involved. You should engage. That's what the Lord would say to me. At times, you're going to have to step in. At times, the most loving thing you can do, if love is doing what's best for someone, regardless of the personal cost, then am I going to love you enough to enter into relational awkwardness? Am I going to do that? Or am I going to be a sissy? I don't know what it is that keeps you from engaging or that causes you to avoid. Am I going to say, because I love you, I'm going to step into this. You haven't necessarily sinned against me, but I see this thing in your life. And it is no good. And so I'm going to step in and try to gently restore you. So what are some practical ways of doing that? I think this maybe works for abandoners and avoiders. One, if the issue lingers. So if I just have a thought, I don't necessarily act on it. If I have the same thought for a week or ten days, then I start thinking that might be the Lord. If something bothers me, I I forget, I don't hold on to things. Um, It's not because I'm great, I just don't. And so if something is swirling around in my mind about someone for a week or more, I start to think that might be the Lord. That's not my natural tendency. I move past things really quick. That may be for you. Is is this a concern that that you're having over time versus just one time? And the second thing I do, I started doing this a few years ago, and actually it, it works. This is what I say to the Lord. God, I'll have the conversation if you'll open the door. They've got to ask me the question. If they ask me the question, this is what I'll say. And I actually think through what I would say. Here is what I would say to that person if you give me the opportunity to do so. And I can't tell you how many times he has. I'm, I am most likely not going to bring something up. But if you ask me the question, I'm most likely not going to lie. I'll tell you the truth if you ask me the question. And so that's my way of saying, God, is this because I know I'm a voider and a voider. I'm saying to the Lord, you make it possible. Have them ask me the question and then I'll 
I'll share. Now, some of you love confrontation. Like, that's your thing. Challenge, challenge, challenge. I'm going to find everything wrong with everybody. I'm going to let you know about it. You probably should pray the same prayer. You should. God, if you want me to have this conversation, then you open the door. I need to pray that or else I'll never talk to anybody. You need to pray that because you want to talk to everybody. And so let's find out who are the people the Lord would have us talk to. Let's pray that prayer. Some people actually in the name of confrontation are abandoners. They use confrontation to cut relationship off. They're more concerned about being right than maintaining relationship or you growing at all. And if that's you, you you just need to hear that, mature in that. So I would encourage you, we all fall one way or the other. We either abandon relationships when sin is in the mix or we avoid. When we abandon, our hands are off and we're just going to say they're going to get what they get. When we avoid, it's like I'm hoping for the best. I hope somebody says something and it doesn't have to be me. Neither one of those things is righteous. What we want to do is say, all right, first, love covers a multitude of sins. So God, is this one of those cases? That in the name of love, we just, we just roll on. And we love each other and we pray for each other and we give each other grace to mature. Or I'm an abandoner and I need to remember as much as it depends on me, if it's possible, I need to live at peace with these people. So, God, you've got to give me grace to re-engage with them. I've got to release this long record of wrongs that I'm keeping. Or if you're an avoider like me, God, you've got to give me courage and honestly a deep enough love for other people to say I'm going to gently restore them. I'm going to do that. Is the issue lingering over time that may be the Lord? Would you ask him to give you the opportunity to share? If you're ready, if you're ready, you ask him to give you that opportunity and see, see what he does. If not, maybe it's not yours to share. And you can rest in that. If he does, step in and see. It means maybe he's been preparing the ground for you to do that, regardless of the other person's faith. God's always at work. When they ask you the question, it probably means they're receptive to the answer. We want to be people. All of our family systems, again, think about those two houses. All of our family systems are broken to some degree. That's just life in a fallen world. We want to be people who bring healing as much as we can, whatever our role is. As sons, as daughters, as brothers, as sisters, as aunts and uncles, as best friends, as parents, whatever our roles are in those systems, we want to be channels of grace and mercy and life. What you see in David's house is sin increasing. We don't want to see that happen in our own families. And it will happen if we avoid or if we abandon. Let's pray. We're just going to close with prayer. We're not going to have a ministry this morning. We did that during worship. And so I'm just going to close you with with prayer. And this is what I want you thinking about. I'm going to ask the Lord to speak to you and to me. Think about those two houses, the one you came from and the one you're living in. God, I pray that you would show each one of us, is there a a sinful dynamic at play in one of those houses that you would want us to address? This is unfortunate 
for some of you. It's your mom. And Mother's Day brings it up. It's not that you don't love her, but she's difficult. Again, this is not necessarily a personal sin against you. It's just a sinful, I don't know other, any other word, dynamic in your home. But again, one of those two homes. If the Lord brought something to mind, I want you to think about who you are naturally. Are you a natural avoider like me? Are you more of a natural abandoner? That doesn't mean you're not aggressive. I think abandoners can be some of the most aggressive people out there. (laughs) So let's pray this. God, I pray that you would show me, is this a situation where love needs to cover this sin? Is it something that doesn't need to be Engaged, at least not at this point. And if you're me, then you need to confess, God, I know that's what I want to hear. I want it to be something that I don't have to engage, and so I confess that to you as an avoider. But I want to hear, is this something that you're wanting me to engage? Then I would encourage you to really think about which of those two camps you fall in and to own that before the Lord and confess that. There's some good things about both of those in the spirit. Some good personality traits kind of behind those things. But we want to recognize that oftentimes it's just not helpful. So God, so you can pray with me if you're an avoider. God, I confess that I'm an avoider. I don't want to engage. For me, God, it's I don't like conflict. I hate relational awkwardness. I don't want to be self-righteous and judgmental. And I just and so I, I pull back, I avoid. God, would you give me not just courage, I pray that you would transform my understanding of love, that I would love the people in my houses w- enough, that I would love them well enough to enter into relational awkwardness, to experience that discomfort on my end for the good of those people. You pray your version of that. You may want to say, God, I confess I'm an abandoner. I've been abandoned and I abandon. My heart is beat up. It can't take anymore. And I'm asking for grace to re-engage. I confess I've cut off and you can name who those people are. And I pray you would show me. As much as it depends on me, if it's possible, show me how to live at peace with them? Is there an active step you would have me take? Even today, God is an avoider. I pray that, again, I would love people enough to restore them gently. Is there a step, an active step that you would have me take even today? God, I pray for us as a body. I pray that we would be ministers of reconciliation. That's what you say we are. Not just reconciling people to you, but reconciling 
people to one another. God, is, we recognize our families are always going to be broken because we live in a fallen world. But as much as possible, God, we want to our families, the houses that we come from and the houses that we currently inhabit, God, and the houses that we will inhabit in the future, we want those houses to, to accurately reflect the dynamics of the kingdom of God. We don't want to allow sin to fester. We certainly don't want to create circumstances and environments where sin can increase in kind or in scope. So God, would you move in each one of us as instruments and ministers of reconciliation that we would love our mothers well and our fathers well and our brothers and sisters well and our spouses well and our children well. That we would love our closest friends well. God, I pray for those who are kind of feeling it under the weight. I pray for confidence that you're at work not just in their lives but in the lives of those who they're concerned about that you're moving that you will give them wisdom and revelation what to say and then even the opportunity to say it any pressure people feel to fix anyone or anything I should pray for uh, freedom from that that we would do our part in terms of being willing and then being obedient in the moment. And God, we trust you to do your part, which is working all things together for good. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys. Y'all have a good rest of your day. Celebrate your mothers well. If any of you came in late and didn't get a rose, you moms, you can come up here and grab one, and we'll see you next week.